Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning, welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It's all going horribly wrong, ladies and gentlemen. Loads of people are doing what they shouldn't be doing and there are sure to be dire consequences if they continue to refuse to do what they are told. There might even be a second peak. You might call it a second Maxine peak, but that's enough about the Labour Party. Clever clog Sakir Starmer appears to have opened the gates of the loony left farm by sacking Rebecca Long-Bailey for endorsing the views of a nutty actress and her mistaken assertions about the American police and their tactics and their links, of course, uh, with Israel. Stalwarts of the dying Corbyn Easter movement are still writhing around in the death throes of their doomed situation. This morning, some of them are even meeting up with Keir Starmer to demand answers. They won't get any, of course. Owen Jones is apoplectic. Former Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell is standing in solidarity with Rebecca Long-Bailey and he's retweeted the same article by Maxine Peake and all is not well at Guardian Towers. They're all fighting like rats in a sack. It's great, isn't it? We'll be asking John McTiernan, former fiscal secretary to Tony Blair, what is going on inside of Labour? 0344 499 1000. The question is, is Keir Starmer cleverer than we thought he was? Has he launched this attack on the far left in order to drag Labour back to the centre and maybe make it more electable? And if he's doing that, can he actually succeed? Coming up later on, we'll be talking criminal justice. There was more trouble last night in flashpoints around London. And after what happened in Brixton this week, we may, we, we may well need the Nightingale-style courts that are being set up to take care of a backlog of cases. Barrister Jerry Hayes will set us straight on that. 0344 499 1000 is the number you need, of course. We want to hear from all of you uh, because there are fears of a second wave of coronavirus breaking out. Thanks to all of those people flocking to the beach uh, because, of course, uh, not only have they gone there in vast numbers, half a million people at one point visiting Bournemouth yesterday uh, in one fell swoop, but also they're leaving all their litter behind. We'll be taking the temperature of the nation with Dr Lawrence Gurlis. And, of course, because it's Friday, uh, we have another exciting episode of the Perrier Awards, an homage to my brilliance in broadcasting. And for homeschooling today, we're going to be learning all about blood types as well. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. So it's been quite a uh, sort of, shall we say, explosive 24 hours if you're on the left of politics because the left have been tearing themselves apart, uh, taking pops at Keir Starmer. Owen Jones uh, has been absolutely and utterly beside himself with rage. Uh, we've got John McDonnell saying that he doesn't believe that Rebecca Long-Bailey should have been fired. Rebecca Long-Bailey herself was offered the opportunity to stay in the job that she had, uh, which was, of course, Shadow Education Secretary, but she refused to remove the tweet in which she said that Maxine Peake was a diamond, despite the fact that Maxine Peake in her piece uh, and an interview in the Independent uh, actually asserted that the reason that uh, George Floyd was dead was because the Minneapolis police had learned how to put the knee on the neck from the Israeli 
uh, Defence Force. And that, of course, turns out to be completely and utterly wrong. Was it anti-Semitic? There are those who don't think it is. John McDonnell's one of them. That's not really the point, though. What would appear to be the case here is that Keir Starmer has come up against the far left in the in the uh, uh, the sort of the, the guise of Rebecca Long Bailey, uh, and he has taken a stand and he's decided that this is a good opportunity, perhaps to set the record straight for Labour and to put Labour back now on a more centrist footing. Let's talk to John McTiernan, Tony Blair's former political secretary, to see what he makes of it all. John, very good morning. Good morning. Thanks very much for joining us. Is this um, an attempt by Keir Starmer to drag Labour back to the centre or is it something that's just happened and just sort of come up? Look, I think it's a bit of both. Um, Keir Starmer has to show he's a strong leader. Um, And in the face of this, he had to sack Rebecca Long-Bailey it was wrong for her to endorse uh, the Maxine Peak interview. It was wrong for her to refuse to uh, withdraw her tweet, to apologise. It's been wrong for her. She's not, she's not taken it off um, Twitter. No, it's still there, isn't it? Uh, yeah. uh, so, so she's unrepentant on that. And the thing is, the, the, the death of George Floyd, uh, for which police officers are being prosecuted, is a crime. Uh, you don't need to make it any more of it than condemn it as a crime by police officers uh, to attach it in this way to a strange conspiracy theory that the reason the American police did that was because they've been taught not actually by the idea by I think she says uh, Israeli secret services so she's saying that Mossad did the training yeah um, and it's that kind of you know the minute you read something like that you know you're in the realms of crazy conspiracy theory cranks at that point you shouldn't be doing retweeting, even if you say retweets are not endorsements. You should be walking away. You should be condemning if you're a front bencher. And this is what it amounts to. Labour front benchers don't speak for themselves. They speak for the party. They are the voice of the party. Uh, they're the voice of the leader. The leader can't speak on every issue. He's got to trust his front bench and their judgment. He clearly can't trust Rebecca Long-Bailey. Now, I would never have appointed her in the first place. I thought that was a sign of weakness, but he's shown real strength speed and strength now uh, and i think uh, the the screams of pain from uh, from the from the left of the party uh, are exactly uh, what he would want uh, Keir wants to show to the center ground of british politics very different leader from uh, jeremy corbyn and you don't do that just by doing better at pmqs no, that's true. Um, we can talk about PMQs in a bit. But then some would say, of course, Keir Starmer worked on the front bench under Jeremy Corbyn uh, and he wasn't a particularly enthusiastic anti, uh, anti-Semite anti uh, crusader then. Keir worked on the front bench. He wasn't the leader. Uh, he positioned himself through what he did on the front bench uh, to um, be able to take over from Jeremy Corbyn, probably the most effective uh, revenge on Jeremy Corbyn you could ever imagine. But he was oh, he has always been... Uh, strong and uh, opponent of anti-Semitism, uh, you know, in his career as a lawyer, but also uh, in his career as an MP and on the front bench, uh, he he never uh, hung around uh, with any of those very strange fringe groups, which were uh, the love and joy of Jeremy Corbyn when he was the leader. Yes, quite. And as far as Rebecca Long Bailey is concerned, at first my my initial reaction was she's probably retweeted it without reading mm-hmm. the whole article because I know uh, mm-hmm. because as a journalist and probably yourself, John <laughs> as well, we both probably will read most of, of the entire article before we retweet it. But not everybody does. But the fact that she didn't want to remove it and was kind of uh, she's more or less saying she wasn't given the opportunity to have a conversation with Keir Starmer suggests otherwise, doesn't it? Yeah, 
Yeah, look, it suggests that she actually wants to argue the toss, say actually she had a case or maybe she misexpressed herself. Mm. She wasn't willing to get into condemning Maxine Peake. And maybe that's because Maxine's a friend, Maxine's a local constituent, but it's not appropriate behaviour uh, for a shadow front bencher because the article was littered with problems. I mean, just take the fact that uh, Maxine Peake dismissed everybody who voted for the Tory party yes. last night as a Tory. Yeah. Um, therefore, we don't want their votes. And it's like, the whole point about winning elections is you've got to win the votes of people who don't initially agree with you. Right. And you don't get people to agree with you by saying uh, you're morally wrong. You voted for the Tories. You're really evil. They're evil. You're mm. evil. I see no distinction. Oh, can I have you vote? Well, it's very much the Corbynista line that was taken in the hours immediately after the election result uh, on December the 13th, isn't it? Where you got the likes of John McDonnell and others saying, well, obviously, you know, we've been betrayed by the voters, as opposed yeah. to actually admitting that maybe uh, your message was not particularly palatable to the voters. Yeah, look, traditionally, it's what the Labour Party does. The, the, the after election defeat, uh, the left of the Labour Party, um, first they blame the leadership and then they blame the voters. Mm. In this case, they couldn't blame the leadership because they had the part, you know, they had complete control of the party. One of the strangest things since uh, last year's thrashing of the Labour Party has been uh, the attempt by Corbynites to blame anybody but themselves. They had the leadership, they had the general secretary of the party, they controlled all the regions of the party, they had the manifesto, they even added new mad things to manifesto during the election campaign. It, you know, it was their, it was their election campaign, their defeat. They should wear it, which is one of the reasons why, to be honest, I would never have appointed Rebecca Long Bailey in the first place. She ran against Keir Starmer to take the party in a particular direction. You know, continuity Corbynism. Once she was beaten, she should have been put on the back bench to show that that part of the party had been beaten and had no future in the Labour Party. Um, you can see by her lack of judgment why she sh should have no future in the Labour Party. Um, and you can see by the harumphing uh, of the left who, who feel it's un I'm, it's really unclear what actually they're defending. Is it the right uh, to um, uh, promote conspiracy theories? You know, first they came for the conspiracy theorists and I said nothing. Right. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I must admit, right, I mean, I've, I've seen many uh, conspiracy theories in my time, as I'm sure you have, John. It's not the worst offence I've ever seen. And, of course, those who are... Uh, uh, sure about themselves and their kind of criticism of Israel mm. and their support for Palestine will say that this is an entirely typical example of how you can't say anything against Israel because it's not so much anti-Jewish, uh, this particular statement. It's more anti-Israel, isn't it? Well, the thing is, it's a lie. And the, the, the question is, why would you promote? Why would you promote? Why would you believe in a lie about Israel? It's because you don't believe in the right of the state of Israel to exist. Yeah. And you can't kind of shimmy around it by kind of going, uh, it would have been bad if it were true. If you read anything about the Israeli government and law enforcement, not just in the U in the US, but everywhere, what they do is they, they do training in counterterrorism because they have sadly had a lot of experience of terrorist attacks uh, quite recently hmm. uh, in Israel. And America has started to have its own domestic terrorism. There's that appalling homophobic slaying in Florida. There was the uh, jihadist uh, killer in, in California. Their police haven't had experience of, of these kinds of attacks. They went to get uh, some training uh, and some learning from the people who knew how to do it. Hmm. Now to turn that into something that, that, you know, why do you need to have the state of Israel involved to condemn the killing of George Floyd. It's because you want to associate Israel 
with something that's utterly evil. Yeah. And that has to be based in some view of yours of the illegitimacy of the state of Israel. And it is hard to take away that from a view of the world, which is at base anti-Semitic. Yes. But she's clearly batty, uh, Maxine Peake, as well. I mean, she's going on about the end of capitalism and, you know, how she really believes mm. that capitalism is the root of all evil. You know, it's all very well. And it's, I mean, when I read it, I actually felt mm. like it was a sort of parody of the far left uh, written by Monty Python. You know, I mean, that's how mad it was. So the idea that, that Rebecca Longbelly would actually associate herself with any of it was quite extraordinary. Oh, well, look, I mean, Maxine Peake herself has actually apologised for that element of her uh, of her article, which even... Rebecca Long Bailey. Well, she hasn't so, quite apologised. She's she's issued some kind of uh, retraction, yeah, which hasn't thing. actually no, no, said the word sorry. Yeah, look, I I think by and large, um, what you know, politicians should be held to a very high standard for what they say about politics. It's their profession. I think you know, actors, um, musicians, ordinary members of the public. They have much lower standards uh, that they're held to, because it's not their profession. And if you're on, a fr- on the front bench, you're in some of the, you're one of the highest roles. You, R- Rebecca Long Bailey has been responsible for fashioning the Labour Party education policy, which at the moment has been about returning to schools. And whatever you think about the farce uh, of Gavin Williams was saying it's safe, then it's not safe. You have to return your kids. You don't. All these things. Rebecca Long Bailey gave bad advice to Keir Starmer, which allowed Boris Johnson to beat him at PMQs a couple of weeks ago because Keir didn't have the right position because he was sitting there with knowing the Labour Party's official position was simply was a photocopy of what the National Education Union uh, had asked Labour to say, which the bad old days uh, when the NUT as it was, the National Education Union as it is now, gets to dictate Labour Party policy on education. So, you know, for a, for a whole load of reasons, Labour's in a much stronger position today, stronger leader, strong signal about uh, the fight against anti-Semitism, the intolerance of that kind of attitude, uh, strong signal that you might actually get um, a proper education policy, uh, not just on COVID return to schools, but the whole range of issues facing the uh, the shadow education secretary. Mm. Um, so it, and, and the chance to make a marquee appointment, a marquee signing as your shadow secretary, you know, this will be a big sign. Of well, the it, it will be. And who do you think that will be? Well, my, my, I think uh, he should make Liz Kendall the Shadow Education Secretary. She is um, of the people on the front bench who are not in the Shadow Cabinet. She's clearly the one that's got the, he's the, he's, has got the greatest talent and should be. Uh, uh, or, you know, Pat McFadden. Make Pat McFadden Shadow Education Secretary. There's a, there's a, there's a lot of the uh, experienced uh, front benchers um, who are now back on the front bench because of Keir, who spent a long time on the back bench because of Corbynism, uh, who Peter Kyle, I think, is a very strong... Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of talent that was held down and held back by Corbyn. And the right appointment will make a really big signal to uh, other members of the PLP. You know, it's not just that bad behaviour gets punished, it's that talent is recognised. True enough. But also, as you said at the start, it's maybe a bit of both when it comes to um, a pre-planned sort of assault on the far left and or just happenstance that uh, this was an opportunity presented itself to, to Keir Starmer to get rid of Rebecca Long-Bailey. But he's got some way to go if it's the beginning of something because he's got mm-hmm. Naz Shah uh, in, his, in his shadow cabinet. Uh, she's a shadow minister for co- community cohesion. You know, she's been in trouble before about some of the things that she said uh, about the Jewish religion and the Jewish race. She's also, um, you know, 
representative of of a of a of a sort of um, a, a part of the Labour Party, um, you know, which is very pro Palestine. There's no contradiction to being pro Israel and pro Palestine. In almost, you know, the, the last few decades have been dedicated to a peaceful solution uh, of a two-state, you know, two-state solution for Israel-Palestine. Supporting Palestine is not, it's not, it's not like, a, you don't have to hate Israel to support Palestine. You can, like I do. No, but some, but some people in the Labour Party do, John, as you well know, and that's the root of the problem, it would seem. I think you can, you think you have to distinguish these things. Uh, you have to say that... Keir Starmer has just drawn a line, set a standard behaviour. Uh, if other people on the front bench cross that line, they'll be sacked too. I think it's really clear what you can and cannot say uh, as the Labour Party. Should there be peace, and, peace between Israel and Palestine? Absolutely. Uh, are there issues about the, the Netanyahu government? I'm a long-term supporter of the Israeli Labour Party, as are most members of the Labour Party. You know, we'd like to see a different government in Israel, just like we'd like to see a different government here, a different government in the United States. In the UK, which is the, part, the place where we fight for votes, we have to win votes from interest, moderate voters. We have to win votes back from people who voted Tory maybe for the first time in their life, maybe for the third or fourth time in their life at the last election. It doesn't matter how long you've been voting Tory for. The point is you didn't vote for the Labour Party. You have to bring those people back. And what you have to show as a leader is, you know, forensic abilities got it. Uh, you've got to show strength. Yes, I think he's got that, Amanda. You've got to show steel and you've got to show the will to kill. You've got to be willing to take out your opponents. And the thing about, was this a strategy or not? Probably not. But actually, the best leaders take advantage of any opportunity that comes up. This advantage has been taken uh, and I think it strengthened here immensely. And it probably, despite um, uh, Bournemouth Beaches, it's probably cut through to the, to the country as well. It's another brick in a wall. Like it's a long, it's a long, long way back for Labour. Uh, we were damaged so badly by Jeremy Corbyn uh, that it may well be 10 years before the Labour Party uh, can realistically be back in government. But some of the key elements have been put in place uh, and, and it's important to do them as early as you can. Well, it's a good start, I think, let's say that. And also, I suppose the one thing we should allow you to have a free open goal on is a good day for Robert Jenrick. <laughs> well, I, maybe, yes, it, look, I, I, I'm, I'm a very sad person. Uh, as soon as Robert Jenrick released 149 pages of correspondence, I read every single one of those pages. <laughs> um, and there were some very revealing moments. My favourite, my personal favourite, was the um, uh, civil servant who said, uh, I could write, I could write, um, something that tried to strengthen the Secretary of State's arguments, but I wouldn't want to put anything down in writing that could then be used as evidence in a future appeal. I mean, I think um, I think we got a very harsh light shot into the way that some government uh, decisions are making. And yeah, it, this may be a good day for Robert Jenrick, uh, though I suspect the story isn't going away because he's kind of got everything. Um, it, he's got money, he's got property, it's got conflict, conflict has of it interest. Has not quite got a killer fact, though, has it? Uh, it has got, I mean, from anybody who knows the civil service, I think, I think there is a killer fact, which is uh, there's reference right throughout it to a readout from a, you know, there'll be a readout from a meeting uh, with Robert Jenrick and a readout, you know, and the readout is he doesn't want, he doesn't, he wants the application to go ahead. I mean, that's not a readout, that is an instruction. Um, and the time of the instruction is very, very, well, it is, it is within days of meeting, uh, 
Yeah. But I mean, as, as I mean, we're out of time, John, so we can't go any further. But I mean, you've been in government with Tony Blair as an mm. advisor. You know how these things are done. And, it's yeah. you know, it's a very thin line between um, the way it should be done and the way it shouldn't be done. And I'm not sure that this one crosses it. I agree it doesn't look great. But listen, we'll talk again soon. John McTinn, uh, uh, Tony Blair's former political secretary uh, on Keir Starmer. Has Keir Starmer just started a battle? Has he just fired the starting gun on anti-Semitism in the Labour Party? Because if he has, he's going to have quite a long way to go before he can clean out the sewer of anti-Semitism which exists within the Labour Party. And I'm sorry to say, uh, which exists in people like... Um, John McDonnell, Owen Jones and some of the other far left sort of hard nuts who have come out and said that Rebecca Long-Bailey should never have been fired. That's their problem. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's talk to Jerry Hayes, uh, our good friend, a man uh, who I like to have a big row with every now and again. Uh, Jerry, very good morning to you. Welcome. <laughs> Good morning, Mike. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Now, this has been a bit of a, um, a pet subject of yours for a while. We've spoken many times about how the criminal justice system uh, has not really been fit for purpose lately. Um, is this new system, this new Nightingale court system, likely to help out? It's going to help. It's going to help out. It's got to help out because what is being proposed, even by people like the Lord Chief Justice, is that we should abandon some jury trials so you can have a case-hardened judge and two predominantly white and male magistrates. That is appalling. Now, the government will say, well, we're doing all of this because of COVID-19. Mm. We've discussed this before. It's precious little to do with COVID-19. Before lockdown, there were 35,000, no, 37,400 cases which were backlogged because the government was closing courts to save money. Now it's gone up to 41,000. Now we cannot get rid of the cornerstone of British justice because the government has been underfunding the, the, the criminal justice system. So Nightingale courts, I think they're gonna call them Blackstone courts, is a good idea, but they've got to go further. They've got to employ recorders. They cannot and should not get rid of jury trials for any offences at all. No, quite. And interesting that they want to call them Blackstone courts because they want to name them after William Blackstone, who was apparently an 18th century jurist who I must confess to be not at all familiar with. Let's hope he doesn't have any skeletons in his closet. Otherwise, obviously, uh, they'll have to rename it again. Hope yeah, I mean, that's we'll suddenly discover after these courts that he <laughs> earned his money from slavery. Yes. Like the founder of The Guardian, actually. You don't hear too much about that, but the founder of The Guardian well, got his money through slavery. Apparently it's so. It's all getting ridiculous. Well, it really is. But The Guardian, of course, are very busy now trying to deal with the uh, the fight and the battle uh, for Keir Starmer's brain, uh, whether or not he's on the right side of history by sacking Rebecca Long-Bailey. And uh, I'm going to be very amused by what's going to be written in The Guardian over the course of the next week because they're literally like rats in a sack now, the Labour Party, and, and all of their sort of apparatchiks. Yeah, and, and, what, and what's Owen Jones going to write? Because he used to be against Corbyn, and then suddenly he's for Corbyn. Uh, and now he's for Keir Starmer, but on the other hand, he's for Rebecca Long-Bailey. And, you know, I don't think people give a damn about any of this. <laughs> it's all internal party politics. They really don't care. 
you know, they do care about violence on their streets. Well, this is this they is do what I, care. This is what I wanted. Care. This is what I wanted to talk yeah. to you about because Pretty Patel this morning is meeting supposedly with Cressida Dick. I haven't yet found out uh, what the outcome of that meeting has been. But you know, I don't know if you agree with me, Jerry. We've seen this before. Uh, we saw it with the riots in 2011. Uh, we saw it before that in the riots on 1981. All the way back, you know, we've got a long history yeah. of sort of civil disobedience in this country, particularly when the summers get a bit warm. But you know, it does feel a little bit lawless at the moment out there on the streets i mean even just driving around people are driving like absolute maniacs oh i i entirely agree and then on the one hand we come to brixton in a second but let's look at the bournemouth beach yeah absolutely appalling now if these people are so stupid they want to kill themselves and their families up to them but they could be killing us because we may bump up into them on a tube or in a pub or anywhere else so that is being condemned, but no one seems to be condemning what's happened in Liverpool when everyone was celebrating whatever the, the match was last night. No, I'm delighted for them. But you saw they were doing just the similar same thing as they were doing in Bournemouth. They were infecting each other. Yeah. But well, this is, is the thing. But all the same people, but also all the same people uh, who are uh, condemning what went on in Bournemouth have not condemned the uh, you know freedom of expression that was shown on various marches in London uh, for the past three or four weekends uh, because that's all right then. Yeah, I, I could understand why the police wanted to be far more low key because things were very raw after what had happened in in the United States of, of America. Yeah, sorry, right, sorry. Why though? I mean, why, Jerry? You know, after somebody's well, killed in I the just, United States of America, things are suddenly raw in this country. Well, there there is a whole argument on that. But the, the argument is that there's a lot of black people who feel they don't get a fair crack of the whip here. And there are the st st statistics uh, and we've got to we've got to improve. But what we have seen in the last few days and what we saw in 1981 and the other riots just a few years ago it's just lawlessness. Mm. It's not protesting. And I saw some guy who was interviewed on Sky yesterday, who's, who was from Brixton, who just said, well, look, we're enjoying ourselves. We've been in lockdown. And then the police tried to come along and enforce, and this was the key word, their law. Right. It's not their law, it's our law. And it was democratically passed and everyone has to obey it. Right. And 22 police were, 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 were injured. I mean, we saw that riot, didn't we, um, about with, with the Black Lives Matter in, um, in, in Westminster, yeah. where a police officer was thrown off of a horse because someone had thrown a bicycle and people were cheering. We saw a police officer being kicked in the head yeah. by a 13-year-old boy and people were not going to help. They were taking photos of it. Yes. Now, hang on. The police have got to be fair, but they've got to be tough and they've got to take control of the streets. Yes, because what has ha basically happened here um, is that because they've taken this um, this sort of position that they don't wish to make anything worse, i.e. they don't want to exacerbate a situation, they don't really want there to be cars set on fire and rioting, which is, which is even worse than what we've already seen. They're basically doing nothing. Well, it looks to me like that is possibly the worst policy of all. And it seems to me that Cressida Dick is well out of her depth as uh, the, the, the leader of the Metropolitan Police. And she should she should be replaced, shouldn't she? Well, I, I, it's, that's a matter for the mayor of London, isn't it? Well, he's gone very uh, quiet. I haven't Secretary. seen Sadiq Khan talking, even talking about what <laughs> happened in Brixton. No, because on the one hand, he says it's perfectly all right for people to go on marches and protest and infect each other. 
uh, and it's not perfectly all right, obviously, to injure police officers, but perfectly all right to, to calm everything down. You know, I can understand that because that was by and large a peaceful protest. Hmm. What happened at Brixton was not a protest. It was thuggery and lawlessness. Yes, and also the reason the police were there, Jerry, was because they were called to the area by local residents who were fed up to the back teeth of this party oh. that had been going on for ages and was meant to have ended at 10 o'clock at night and was not ended. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely right. So it was it was wrong on just about every level. Mm. But police being attacked, I'm sorry, that is not on. And I'm afraid they have to move in. There'll be complaints because people say they'll be wrongly arrested. People will say it's because of the colour of their skin. But but really, it, it, it's not. We we have to restore law and order because we're going to have a rough old summer. You see what's been happening in Bournemouth and elsewhere because of, I suspect, mixed signals which have been coming out from various sources, particularly some of the newspapers. Yeah. Hooray, we've got our freedom. Yeah, let's go and do this and do that. They don't realise that this virus is still whizzing around mm. and we could have another spike. Well, Lots I mean, there are, I've yeah. just spoken to a doctor who says that that's very, very unlikely because it hasn't happened since the first Black Lives Matter march. There has not been a spike and there will probably not be one. But even aside from that, you know, the, 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 technically speaking, the beaches are not open. I mean, I drive down to Sussex to see my kids at the weekends and there's a sign that says the beaches are not open, but people are still going to them because people don't believe in law anymore. That's my point. I don't think people actually believe that any law applies to them. Well, and this is the trouble. The other trouble is I don't think that Bournemouth Council, and I'll probably get into trouble for saying this, have behaved particularly responsibly in the same way that Brighton have. You don't have the same problems in Brighton that you had in Bournemouth because they patrolled the beaches. Mm. They pretty well closed them and just said, you can't come in. Bournemouth, it was relying on the good common sense of the British people. Well, I tell you, I was in politics for a very long time. <laughs> <laughs> and I say no more. But then again, I mean, I remember seeing a, a, a councillor from Brighton Council being interviewed uh, on the seafront, talking with the beach behind her, uh, full of people, saying, well, of course, we've closed the beaches. They're not open. And I was waiting for the interviewer to go, well, hang on a minute, who are all those people then? And what are they doing there? But I take your point. It wasn't as busy as Bournemouth. But equally, Bournemouth Council are saying, look, here's the point. Um, we don't have any facilities here. Nothing's open, i.e. the shops are not open when they can be. You know, the bars are not open when they could be. You know, why don't they just open up a little bit more? Well, on the 4th, on the 4th of July, which I suspect Boris Johnson chose that date because the 4th of July, Independence Day, blah, 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 nice, funny little has a nice ring to it. Made. There's a, it has a nice ring to it, you know, probably written by Dominic Cummings or someone like that. But, well, mean, listen, if you, play your cards right, imagine- if you play your cards right, Jerry, you may well get invited to our special um, pub show, which is going on on July the 4th, live oh. from a pub, Ooh. not a million miles away from our office. Oh, here. Yes. Um, so please uh, do get some details from Martha oh, before yes. you go. Yes. Oh, in a pub. And I, I should have a fancy mask by then. <laughs> well, I've said nothing about I mean, that. you know. No, but I mean, the <laughs> point, the point, the point is, is that this government, who, of which I know you're a, a, a fierce critic, um, have been, I think, still relatively clever about the way they've done this. But the trouble is, it's a thin line between allowing a certain amount of kind of freedom of choice, because the people, as you say, yeah. um, don't necessarily take well to that. Um, and they take it too far. And so now I think they've taken the view, well, nothing really matters anymore. 
I think that's right. I was watching Dr. Hillary, who's a very sensible, sound bloke yeah. on Good Morning Britain this morning. And mm. I think he summed it up rather well. He says, look at the way the TV is actually reporting the virus now compared to what it was a few weeks ago. A few weeks ago, you had people being rushed to hospital, people dying, people being thrust on their on their tummies because they can't breathe properly. And it was a horror story. Now it's pictures of people enjoying themselves people on the beach yeah and people i'm afraid are stupid think well it's not gonna happen to me is it look the sun is shining i've got a drink in my hand hooray well it could be another story it really well it could, could. i hope there's not another story. well it could but, but i mean if you listen but, but if you listen course. yeah but if you listen jerry to what the scientists are currently saying uh, yes, they're urging caution, and, and Chris Whitty's one of those, the the, uh, the chief medical officer. However, um, there is some pretty good evidence that the virus has all but disappeared from certain parts of the southeast of England. There's certain parts of the southeast of England, yes. I'm not convinced about London. Um, we just don't know, because you know, we, talk, we talk about the, the scientists. There's about 100 scientists on SAGE, or, you know, coming backwards and forwards on say and they're not all agreed this is not a black and white issue and again i think it comes down to common sense okay you can relax the meter rule but you've got to mitigate it if you're going to be a meter indoors from someone you've got to wear a mask because if you cough if you're shouting loudly if there's loud music going on or something like that or you're singing and just being you know a little bit drunk and having a really good time that's when you're going to get infection again. And then we have a lockdown and then the economy does a nosedive. And this is why it's so responsible, because at the end of all of this, when winter comes, when the usual round of influenza comes as well, if there's another spike, then there will be an overwhelming of the National Health Service. And yeah, but Jerry, you know, that. as well as I do, we get flu uh, in, in, in every single winter. You know, nobody yeah, yeah. nobody in their right mind would stand up, as you've just done in the middle of June, to say, whoa, what happens when we get the flu in the wintertime? Well, the same thing that happens when we get the flu in the wintertime every other year. Some people will oh, no, die and we won't make a big thing about it. No, no, the difference is people will get the flu because they always do. And the worst time is, is about is about January, actually, mid-January. I don't know why, but it tends to be. Yeah. But it, on top of that, if you've got a spike at the same time as the flu, then we're in trouble. And we want to do everything we can to avoid it. Yeah, no, I, no, I get all that. But what I'm saying is, is that we don't have we don't have to become a country which is terrified of absolutely everything, including our own shadow. No, no, I agree with that. Just exercise common sense it has not gone away simple straightforward as that right so final go. question we'll jerry will, will these nightingale courts could they be used to kind of uh, deliver swift justice to some of these rioters because <laughs> your idea of swift justice is basically mike <laughs> come on they're all guilty you don't yep, need a lock them all up well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. If I show you, I'm sorry. It's sorry, Jerry. too good for him. If I show you a video of a man with a baseball bat bashing in the front windscreen of a police car, he's identified by a series of witnesses. I don't think you have to have a long trial, do you? Uh, no, of course not. And it's his right uh, to have due process, as everyone has the right to have due process. Well, I'm I'm not sure that's right, but I suppose I'd oh, have to bend to your uh, your democratic uh, <laughs> rights and all that, right? Right, 100 guineas, please. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Jerry Hayes, uh, a fine man and a fine barrister. If you're ever in trouble, he's your guy. Uh, we'll talk to him again, possibly, on the, uh, the day of the pub opening, which is July the 4th. We'll bring you more news on that coming up next week. Hold up. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Uh, let's talk to Alex Farrell, who is, of course, Talk Radio's um, wonderful breakfast executive producer uh, for Julia Hartley Brewer. Um, and he's going to be live right now um, on FaceTime from Beaconsfield Services. <laughs> I think possibly the first time we've ever had a guest from a service station, Alex. Very good uh, morning to you. Welcome. Morning, Mike. It doesn't get more glamorous than this, does it? Yeah, absolutely fantastic stuff. Um, now, this story that we're about to embark upon uh, is not for the faint-hearted or indeed the um, uh, the lily-livered, because I've already had a few complaints from people going, do you really need to talk about your pants? I don't want to talk about my pants, but apparently uh, men only buy underwear once every five years. That's quite an extraordinary uh, statistic, isn't it? Do you know, I couldn't believe it, Mike. Um, once every five years. I mean, I'm 29. I've never bought a pair of pants in my life. What? So I'm going to say once every 30 years is surely the average number. <laughs> well, where do you get your pants from? Well, my mum. Where else does anyone get their pants yeah, from? At 29, your mother buys your underwear. Well, look, um, my, my birthday is November and obviously Christmas is December. So November, December, it's Breaking news. This is why it's, you're the top well, producer on the station. Well, yeah, it's perfect season as far as I'm concerned <laughs> for buying your winter wear um, and getting all of your clothes given by your aunties, your uncles, mom and dad. And they always buy you a pack of pants and some socks, of course. So why would I need to buy any more for the rest of the year? It's just a waste of money. Well, I suppose so. Um, but I find this to be a rather bizarre sort of uh, study that's been done. It's been done by um, a company called um, Tom Clinch, which apparently is an underwear manufacturer oh. that I've I've never heard of, to be honest. Did you say Clinch or Clinch? Clinch, apparently, with an I. Oh. Um, the guy, uh, there's a guy called Nick Clinch, who's the founder of the company. He says it's deeply depressing to discover that men invest in something as important as underwear so infrequently, mm. which is oh, true. I, agree. I think maybe I'd buy myself some pants if it was for a special occasion. You know, either some novelty pants or uh, for the odd occasion, I might want to have someone else see my pants. But believe me, Mike, in my life, that's very rare. Um, so generally, I'm happy just wearing you know, the bog standard. But how does your mother know which pants you like? Well, she just gets extra large, doesn't she? She understands. Right. Now, I don't know if I'm going to give too much away here, but you are the um, uh, the happy owner of a, of a new hot tub, are you not? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. very happy owner. Right. So um, what's the sort of, um, what's the etiquette for the hot tub? Is it swimming what? trunks? Oh, swimming trunks, do you yeah. Buy your own, do you buy your own swimming trunks? I've got my own. I do buy my own. But you see, you're not meant to wash them um, because it messes with all the chemicals in the hot tub. So with your swimming trunks, you're meant to put them out to dry and wash them. So obviously, I don't wear pants at home. In fact, I'm probably not wearing any pants now. You know, why would you need it? It's too hot for pants. Is it? Yeah, that's a bit too much information for me. Thank oh, you very sorry. much indeed. I tend to um, get mine in America whenever I go over to see my sister and my mother. Uh, that's oh, yeah. a very nice... Um, outlet or village one of these places where you can go and buy very nice expensive clothes for a lot less money basically and that's where i tend to uh, tend to get mine and are they sort of, different are they are they chlorinated not particularly and i'm talking no i'm talking about the sort of boxer shorts really i go to banana republic they've got a nice banana yeah. republic got a nice calvin klein there and instead of paying hundreds and hundreds of pounds for them you just sort of pay you know 10 or 20 bucks a pop 
And what do you go for? Do you go for the boxer shorts, maybe um, yes. you know, the smaller tighty whiteies? No, absolutely not. No, definitely, definitely the boxer shorts for me. But uh, uh, I think I'm had. I think I've had enough of this conversation already. Um, yeah, me too. But yeah. listen, thank you, Alex, for joining in. Uh, Talk Radio's producer live from Beaconsfield, uh, where his uh, mum has apparently bought him his pants for his entire life. Twenty nine years of age, still hasn't actually bought his own, which I think is pretty awful, uh, pretty embarrassing. I'd have to say. Mid morning with Mike Graham, Talk Radio. Now, before we speak to Dean Russell, let us just have a listen to Matt Hancock. He is, of course, the Secretary of State for Health. He was on Dan Wooden's show yesterday on Talk Radio, uh, and he was asked about what would happen uh, if people did not continue uh, to invade the beaches of this country. Well, we do have that power. We do have that power. I'm reluctant to use it because, uh, you know, people have had a pretty tough lockdown, and I want people to be obviously, I, you know, everybody should be able to enjoy the sunshine. The key is to do it with respect. You know, stay with your household, stay a good distance from uh, uh, other households. Uh, outside is safer than inside. Uh, so, um, you know, there is a, you've got to respect the rules. You've got to respect the fact that social distancing is still important. Um, and, and we do have, we do have those powers. And if, if we see a spike in the number of cases, then we will take action. And we have taken that sort of local action already over the last few weeks in some other parts of the country and we'll keep absolutely vigilant. Uh, Health Secretary Matt Hancock there talking to Dan Wooden yesterday. Uh, the weather probably this weekend is going to help out because it's not going to be quite so good uh, and quite so hot and quite so marvellous as it has been for the last couple of days. But let's talk to Dean Russell, uh, who's a member of the Health Select Committee, uh, of course. He's also Conservative MP for Watford. Dean, very good afternoon to you. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me on the show. Not at all. There is a sort of sense that these guidelines are, to some extent, guidelines which are not being really adhered to by quite a large number of people. But nobody seems to really care that that's what's going on. I mean, we're hearing noises coming from Matt Hancock that, you know, we might close the beaches if people don't stop going to them. But there's a sense kind of, for me anyway, that the government's issuing guidelines with a view to kind of hoping that people will adhere to them rather than insisting. Well, I think the um, it's uh, you know the, the the key part here is that we've got to be able to trust the British people to do the right thing, and what we've seen over the past three months is that we were right to do that. You know, with the, without the British public doing everything that they've been doing, um, we wouldn't have that R rate lower. We wouldn't be uh, able to uh, ease lockdown. But it's so important that everybody remembers that if they get close to other people. Uh, they can risk either catching or giving COVID. And my view, especially on beaches, is, you know, what's the point in raising your own risk for, the, for a few rays of sunshine? You know, there's no, uh, there's no sense in that, really. And I think to everyone who probably thought that they might have been the only people to go out, you know, because I think what probably happens is a lot of people think, well, I'll go out, but most people probably won't be there. And then they turn up and everyone's there. So my view is just please to the British public, you know, remember that COVID's still there. Um, the guidelines are there to uh, protect you and they're not there to try and stop you from living your life, but they are there to protect your life. And I think we've got to make sure that um, that message continues loud and clear, even though we're, we're easy in lockdown and enabling people to get back to work and, and some sense of normality. Yeah, I mean, some have said to me today as well, the fact that people are still on furlough, is probably contributing to this kind of um, mass behaviour because people are still getting paid, but they don't have to go to work. So on a general sort of, say, Thursday or Wednesday of, of any given week in June, you wouldn't have had such a big turnout of people because they'd have all been at work. But because they're not at work, they're kind of taking advantage. And it doesn't take many idiots to kind of ruin it for everybody else. Well, it's always the case, isn't it? It's, it's always often the minority that 
um, is highly visible, uh, whereas the vast majority of people are doing the right thing. And I think that's the case in this instance. You know, the, the few who uh, flooded to the beaches uh, or flocked to the beaches, you know, in, in number themselves pr probably weren't massive compared to the population, but in terms of them all together in one place was a huge number. But the, the reality is, you know, the, this, this is still out there. And if anybody has family or friends or work colleagues or anyone who especially is at risk, um, is it really worth the risk to to, put, to do that for the sake of a bit of sunshine? And I think, you know, we've we've had it's been tough on people, and I get it. They they're now seeing that they can go out. You know, they've been locked indoors for a long time, and it's, we've had some some few spots of nice weather during this time as well. So I can understand people wanting to, but I just urge them that it's not worth the risk. It really isn't. Yes, but that's not working, is it? Because we hear that from everybody. We heard it from Matt Hancock. We hear it from uh, lots of politicians. You know, please don't go out on a march because, you know, we shouldn't be really doing that sort of thing because it's not easy to social distance and we would urge you not to do it. The police even urging people not to do something but not actually then taking any action if they do do it. Similarly on the beaches, similarly uh, in these street parties that we're seeing. I mean, I'm looking at a story today from Wales, uh, Ogmore by Sea, Vale of Glamorgan, where they had massive brawls going on yesterday and I've just seen a video actually of, of these young men basically fighting on a beach. It's just remarkable. Oh, absolutely, and, and you know, there's not really words to describe that behaviour, is it? Especially any time, never mind the current time. I mean, as, as uh, Matt Hancock quite rightly said, I mean the work that's been going in to uh, protect the NHS over this time has been immense, and you know the respect that everyone's shown with the clapping for the NHS. You know why risk putting them under more pressure? But what I would say is that the government has been very clear on this that. You know, this is uh, an easing lockdown, but it could, we could go back into a lockdown, whether it be regionally or nationally. And so that is always on the table. What we're hoping is that, you know, and, and recommending and guide, giving guidance for is to say to people, look, please follow the rules. Don't, don't force a situation where the rules have to be much more hardened again and then everybody loses out. Uh, the real reality at the moment is that we're, we've been, uh, you know, everyone's been very good in this overall. Small minorities and, the, and increasingly small minority are now flooding to beaches and, as you say, doing things that are dangerous both for them and for those around them. But what we have to do is make people have to remember that if this starts to grow again, if we start to get a second wave, we would need to potentially go back into a lockdown. And that's the last thing any of us want to do. So that's there. But shouldn't we start arresting a few people, Dean? Because clearly the, the reason why they're doing all of this stuff is because they don't fear the consequences. I mean, people uh, who are having street parties in London obviously don't worry about what's going to happen to them. People going to fight each other on beaches in South Wales clearly have no fear of being arrested because nobody's arresting them. Well, I think that's, again, we, we need to look at how that plays out over the coming weeks. Um, but, you know, the, the rules and the legislation there to enable uh, lockdown and that more harder policing if needed. But we really don't want to have to get into that situation. And my hope is that perhaps, you know, people this weekend will reflect on what they've been doing and realise actually that they're, they're potentially not just putting themselves at risk, but risking um, lockdown in the future, second wave affecting our NHS. Yeah, but they're obviously not bothered about that. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing it. Well, one, one, and I think that's part of the challenge, isn't it? It's continuing that messaging and continuing that, that approach. But the reality is, could the police have gone there and arrested all of those people on the beach? It would have been very difficult, you know. So, the, the, But the problem is, though, idea. the problem is, Dean, listen, with respect, and I know that you're saying what, what is all the right thing to say, but the trouble is that, you know, we are where we are. You know, there are no... The people who are at these beaches, the people who are having street parties, the people who are marching, don't think that they've got anything to worry about. 
Now, unless and until they can be told that they have got something to worry about, which they can believe, and telling them that there might be a second peak clearly isn't working. So the only real uh, weapon you've got left in your armour, surely, uh, is to arrest somebody. You don't have to arrest all of them. But you've got, to, you've got to do something, otherwise it's never going to stop. And we're going to have a, a world in which we ordinary citizens believe is lawless. Well, I think that your point there is, is similar to points made pre-lockdown, actually, pre the original lockdown, in the sense that actually at that point, you know, we asked the, the um, British people to stay indoors. We asked them to stay at home. Uh, they follow, follow, that, follow that guidance um, in the vast, vast majority of people, and they are the same people. Uh, the reality at this point is that we're, we're, we're testing out and we're trialling and we're, we're you know, making sure that we're coming and easing out of lockdown, but we are constantly having to review whether you know, there needs to be a, a hardening of that or whether we can continue it. My hope, uh, and this is a hope, you know, as I'm sure many others have, is that you know, those people who went and did that have got it out of the system and realise what's going to happen. If we see this week after week after week, then, of course, the government is going to have to step in and do something about it in a harder way. But I don't think... My sense is that that's not going to need to be the case because I think most people during lockdown did the right thing and I think that will continue. Well, they um, did, but I think now they feel as if that they've done that now and so now that's all over. But they also probably won't want to have to do it again. And I think that's You know what? I, I actually would doubt that. I think that if there was to be another one, people wouldn't do it. Well, in that case, we're you know we're going to have to look at it all again. Then yeah. I don't think we're going to get into that place. I don't think the British people, on the whole, um, are that reckless. I think actually, on the whole, they've followed the guidance. They've done the right thing, and also they've they've seen how the government has really stepped up to save them. With but would you not describe what's been going on as reckless, though? I think there's a, a there's aspects of what people have done, especially things like brawling and so on. Of course, uh, but attacking I think the police, at, reckless. You know, fighting outside of Downing Street, pretty reckless. Well, I think attacking the police is, I'd use words, stronger than reckless. You know, our, our police uh, have been on the front lines throughout this and, and should never be put in danger by anyone for any cause. And so that's worse than reckless in my mind. And yeah. I think, you know, the protests that have caused damage and vandalism, you know, uh, however strong people's feelings are, uh, you don't attack the police. You know, they're there to protect you. And, and the irony of that is that, um, the same people who are attacking the police are probably the same people who would call them for help if they were in danger. So I yeah. think um, that, that's worse than reckless. No, of course. And I know Priti Patel was due to see uh, Cresta Dick this morning. I haven't seen uh, what, what the result of that meeting has been. But certainly the people who have been most badly affected by the, by the lawlessness are the people who live in those areas who called the police in in the first place. And they have to feel pretty bad about the fact that it seems these people can have their street parties whenever they like and whenever they want. And when the police come, they get chased away. Well, in that particular instance, especially in London, I really urge, you know, Sadiq Khan and Chris Sadiq and, and so on, and, and the, the top echelons of those in control and, and to really support the police. You know, my, my view is very firm on this. The police have an incredibly tough job at any time. Um, at the moment, it's even harder. And we've got to support them. And I'm with the Home Secretary and with the Prime Minister on this, that, you know, we, we, we have to back the police to the hilt. And, uh, you know, and I'm unapologetic about that. You know, we can't allow lawlessness and uh, violence against the police because it's a it's it will, you know, we it, it's an inch that gets turned into a mile, as it were. Mm. And I think at this point, you know, I really urge Steve and I really urge Krista Dick to to work hard to, to show the police that we've got their back fully uh, and make sure that protesters who want to peacefully protest 
absolutely, you know, that's that's an absolute right, and that's the way that it should be. But when it starts to turn into violence, when it starts turning into attacks on the police or on the cenotaph, you know, that should not be allowed, and that that's where the police need to have the backup to know yeah. that we'll support them. Yes, absolutely right. Let me ask you one final question, Dean. You're a member of the Health and Social Care Select Committee. There's been a lot of talk, of course, about social care um, before the coronavirus uh, epidemic started, anyway, pandemic, I should say. Um, is there a need for reform of social care, and is there an appetite for it, um, and is there a solution to the problems of financing it? I, I, yeah, it's a great question, and it's one we could probably spend hours on. Um, you know, my, my view is that social care uh, needs to have absolute parity with the NHS and healthcare generally. I think, you know, there's lots of things that um, are happening already, which I think are enabling that to happen. But uh, as I spoke actually in Parliament yesterday, my point was that we have to really look at the whole sector. And I've got a particular passion around the use of uh, what I call um, uh, single customer profiling, as it were, or, or single customer view in terms of patients. So we put patient at the centre and wrap around care of all types around them. It's a longer conversation than now, I'm sure. But but my take is, you know, technology, uh, career pathways, all of those things are key. But what I would say, one of the, the hardest things to listen to in the week on the um, Health and Social Care Select Committee was listening to uh, people who worked in care saying that they'd gone into supermarkets and whilst the NHS staff were allowed to sort of get to the front of the queue, as it were, they were told to leave because they weren't able to, um, to they weren't seen as part of that, that body of people who are helping make a difference in society. And they are, you know, social care workers um, do so much amazing work. And um, I think we've got to, as a society, when we're clapping for carers, really remember that moving forward. Uh, but also I think when we look at how we fund, how we, uh, set up the uh, the care system, you know, not just in the next few years, but over the coming decades. We've got to look at it, I think, overall in a slightly different way. And the good thing I'd say is that, uh, you know, from speaking to Matt Hancock and the team at the Department of Health and Social Care, there definitely is a passion to really use the innovation that we've seen um, during the uh, terrible pandemic uh, and build on that so that the learnings from that aren't lost moving forward. And I think there's a lot of support from that within the NHS and within the social care sector as well. Well, I think you get a lot of support from people who want to see the systems changed and the systems made a bit more fair as well. Dean, thanks very much indeed. Dean Russell, Conservative MP for Watford, member of the Health uh, and Social Care Select Committee. Um, The problem for the government right now uh, is what do they enforce, if anything? And I said to Dean uh, just there, I don't think if there was to be another lockdown ordered that people would actually adhere to it. I think people would go, well, the last one wasn't really necessary, uh, so why should we do another one? I don't think they'd bother, particularly if the weather was nice. The weather is about all of it here uh, right now in this country. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's talk to Dr. Maria Teresa Esposito, because at this time, uh, it is, of course, time for our homeschooling section. So if you haven't done it yet, get your children around the radio, get them around the television. If you're watching on YouTube, get them around the Alexa, because we are going to learn about blood types. Uh, Dr. Maria is a senior lecturer in biomedical science at the University of Roehampton. Um, Maria, very good uh, afternoon to you. Welcome. Thank you. Thank Thank, you so much. No, thank you very very much for joining us. You know, I didn't know uh, what my blood type was until um, I was about uh, somewhere in my 30s and I had to go to Bosnia to cover the war uh, for a newspaper. And obviously, because I was going to be in a war zone, they said, we need to have your blood type posted on your uh, on your bulletproof jacket so i found out that i was o positive which i'm told is probably the most um, the most frequently found blood type yes 
Yeah, um, 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 it's it's fantastic actually to to hear that um, you 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 actually only knew about it when you when you were an adult, uh, because this test uh, uh, and basically understanding what is your blood type, okay, is actually not really painful and can be done with just a little uh, drop of blood, right. and we do this routinely in university. So in a blood in a in, Students are amazed by the fact that in a blood um, drop, uh, we actually can find millions of cells. Uh, and it's not just one type of cells, uh, but, I would, but mostly three types. So the type of blood cells um, are red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets. So the most numerous are the red blood cells. And uh, we need them because basically these are the cells that will take oxygen around our body and will also collect the waste product from uh, the organs and take them to the lung. So in this exchange, we basically take oxygen when we breathe and we bring it to our organs because they absolutely need it to, in order to work. And we release waste in, in the form of another uh, um, uh, molecule, which is called uh, carbon dioxide. So we absolutely need red blood cells because of this function, because of their ability to travel in our body and take this essential oxygen towards our organs. But we also need other cells that are found in the blood. One of them is one type of um, is basically the white blood cells. And these are those cells that are absolutely essential to fight infection. So this would basically be the one uh, uh, fighting bacteria, fighting viruses. Those are the ones uh, that we basically boost uh, through vaccination. I and uh, yes, I was going to ask why? Uh, why do we have so many different types of of blood groups? There's eight of them, um, and, and how and how is it determined what your blood group is? Yes, the blood group depends on little proteins that are expressed on uh, uh, on our cells. Yes, and the population, and we are basically different people with slightly different blood groups. So this difference uh, um, uh, between uh, these proteins uh, on our cells determine whether I can, for example, receive your blood. Uh, so you can donate to me your blood and I can be fine or not. So this is what we call the um, uh, acceptance or rejection of blood. So when people need the transfusion, because for example, they, uh, they have lost blood in an accident, Unfortunately, not every one of us can give blood to these people. So we need to understand who are those people that are compatible. And this compatibility is determined by a sort of passport presented by ourselves that would tell us, yes, I am a good candidate. I can give blood to this person or not. And actually, we, we absolutely need uh, more people to donate blood for this reason. And also, there is a lot of research ongoing to try to find alternative sources of blood, uh, such as with stem cells. We, you might have also have heard of transfusions for slightly different reasons. So in the blood, 
we have lots of cells, of course, but we also have liquid that, that actually is different from cells. So it's just a liquid where these cells float, which is called plasma. And maybe lots of mm, parents and kids these days might have heard of plasma transfusion for COVID-19. Mm. And the reason why people might donate plasma for uh, um, uh, as a therapy for people affected by COVID-19 is because this plasma contains uh, uh, antibodies. So those people that have been affected by COVID-19 and have recovered, uh, they would have antibodies in their plasma. And we can use these antibodies so we can take the antibodies from these people and give it to people that for some reasons that unfortunately we don't know yet, uh, are not doing well, are not fighting the, the virus by themselves, and therefore need help in the form of antibodies. Okay. And if you are, say, for example, uh, like I am O positive, um, and you have a child, is the child more likely to have the same blood type as his parents or her parents? It uh, depends on uh, mum and dad, because basically the 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 blood group is a genetic trait. It means that... Uh, I contribute to my child genetics 50% and my uh, husband contributes for the other 50%. So our child is a combination of uh, my genes and its genes. And uh, mm, how this is transmitted, uh, it also depends on uh, what is dominant and what is recessive. So what we mean is that some traits that could be also having uh, blonde hair, having uh, blue eyes. Some traits are dominant uh, and some are recessive. So depending on the combination of mom and dad, the child might have exactly the same gro uh, blood group of the mom uh, or, or exactly the same of the dad. Okay. And would you recommend to people, if they don't know what their blood type is, that they should find out sooner rather than later? I would say yes, for two reasons. First of all, because unfortunately accidents happen and uh, therefore you might want to know and you might actually want to wear maybe a little chain or having something in your bag to say, and by the way, this is my blood group. Mm. Simply because it makes things uh, quicker for the for the hospital, for A&E, although in A&E they would check again anyway. And it's a really, really simple test. It's absolutely not painful. It's just a little blood, uh, blood drop. Mm. So anyone can do it. Okay. Fascinating stuff. Well, Dr. Maria, thank you very much for, for your time. Uh, there's probably many more questions that people might have, but, but we are, are sadly out of time. Dr. Maria Teresa Esposito, Senior Lecturer in Biomedical Science at the University of Roehampton. Uh, so if you don't know what your blood type is, go and find out, because it could save your life in many, many ways. <laughs> Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. It is 12.48. It is Friday and it is time for this. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Perrier Awards. If only you could see what I could see. 
<laughs> you wouldn't think I look quite as ridiculous as I do. Uh, it's time to welcome Martin Malagon to the studio. A Hola. very warm welcome uh, to you and uh, yours. Thank you very much. Not I at appreciate all. that. I can't really hear myself. I don't know if that's just me or the microphone. Oh, there you go. Ah, you turns out the turn volume was turn down. Up the volume. <laughs> Who would have She's thought? Full of, uh, <laughs> Full of tips for radio broadcasting, is my thing, producer. Not, uh, that's the thing. To I'm, be fair, somebody should have sorted that for you. Yes. Probably the producer. Yes. Yes. Well, yeah, I would say not very much production has gone into uh, going to the segment on time. No. That, oh, well. Well, listen, um, <laughs> it's always different. It's always every week we do it. There's always something else that you haven't thought about. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. But hey, we live and learn. We do. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Parody Awards. Thank you very this much. This is where we look back at the past week of the so-called independent republic so of my called. there it is republic of my grandma on talk radio and choose that favorite moment uh, i'm going to crack on because we don't have much time today yes uh but as it's tradition the first parry goes to you mike Thank congratulations Thank you. is the rant of the week good Lots of people tweeting me about this app uh, that's on the phone now that's uh, to do with COVID-19. Some very sort of what I can only describe as pedantic types saying, it's not an app, uh, it's just the ability for you to get the app. Well, it doesn't matter, right? I didn't ask for it. I don't want it. I didn't want anybody else to put anything on my phone. I didn't suddenly get Fortnite imposed upon (laughs) me so that I could play it whenever I felt like it, did I? And they're a pretty aggressive marketing organisation. What the hell is the government doing putting something on my phone that I didn't ask them for? I'm not interested in whether I need the app or whether I can download the app or not download the app. The point is the government have interfered with the workings of my iPhone and I'm not happy about it. So it's, a, it's a good point. It is a very good point. Although it turns out it wasn't the government that put it on, it was Apple. No. <laughs> but nevertheless, they were, in, were working hand in glove, as Matt Hancock admitted yesterday. Well, yes, he did. So, um, you know, so I, call it, I call it the government Apple, same thing. We might as well be governed by Apple, to be honest. Well, listen... Doesn't mean that we all get uh, free Apple products so they can track Sadly us not. They can. Oh, well. Mm. Uh, travel guru Simon Calder, he joined us earlier this week to talk about air bridges and holidays and all that stuff. And he won himself a peri for the multitasker of the week. Uh, Mike, very nice to talk to you. If I sound a little hesitant, that's because I've got Grant Shapps in my <laughs> other ear. He's giving evidence to the oh, Transport God. Select Committee. <laughs> it's a horrible <laughs> thought, that, isn't it? Imagine? I mean, imagine having Grant Shapps walking around inside your head. That no. wouldn't be good. No, that wouldn't be good. No. Especially because he's got very long hair at the moment. Grant he has. Shapps, Absolutely, him. yes. Mm. So, you know, that's not a nice thought. Yes. Uh, during that very same conversation with someone called there, though, uh, you want a parrier for being the man of the people. So uh, can I go to the Ritz for afternoon tea? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, people do go there for afternoon yeah, I know. tea. I know. They can't afford to stay there, but they like to go to the Ritz. No. Mm. Well, there you go. But um, I, so are you planning on going anytime soon? Well, do you know, I've never been to the Ritz for afternoon tea. Okay. Um, and certain people have said to me, would, would I like to go there? Mm-hmm. It's very expensive, though. Yeah. I once went to one old witch with my children yes. for afternoon tea, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory afternoon tea. Oh, nice. It cost me about 200 quid. Oh, goodness me. Yeah. And mm. I was stuffed as well because it was all chocolate stuff. Yes. You know, oh, horrible. no. Isn't it supposed to be like finger posh sandwiches? Well, it was all that. Well, that yeah. well, yeah, the, the Ritz one is. Yeah, you get yes. the cucumber sandwiches and then you get the tea, the, the, the tea yeah. cakes and then you get the, you know, the confectionery. I mean, it's quite filling, mm-hmm. but it's very expensive. Yeah. And then they give you some champagne And it's also well. shut. So you can't go anyway. <laughs> well, yeah, especially that. Yes. <laughs> uh, Conservative MP Philip Dunn wins the wrong namer of the week. You don't want yeah, the R it, rate to go above one, as it has now done in Germany. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Mark. <laughs> I don't uh, know why it's so funny. So we'll, write, we'll add that one to the list. We've had Graham. We've had Graham quite We've a lot, yes. We've had Mark. Yes. Have we had anything else? Moke. Moke. Yeah, yeah but that, that was, was my own <laughs> wrong so, yeah. namer of the week. That doesn't really count. No. 
But yeah, all right. Well, our entries are still open for okay. the wrong name of the week. Excellent. So to all our featured guests, please be creative. Um, you also win a pair for the wrong placer of the week. Yeah. There's another Sean uh, who's in uh, Dinnington, I think. Is that right, Sean? No, it's Bridlington. Oh, Bridlington. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Yes. Well, that wasn't my fault. No, it, it wasn't said Diddington on the screen. It did. Written and, by and somebody from there. We are going to uh, uh, explain the situation. This should have been the uh, incompetence report yes, of the week. I agree. But because it's her first one, I've decided to extend a pardon. You're and, giving her and, a pass. Yes. That's uh, very unusual. It is very unusual, but you know, I'm that kind. Yes. Uh, You're going you know. like the police, going all soft in the <laughs> independent republic. Well, it's because it's too hot outside, yeah, so yeah. I can't really... There are no it. laws anymore. No, absolutely not. And as long as you feel passionate about it, it's fine. That's good, yeah. Um, anyway, so poor assistant producer Izzy, who's yes. not been with us for very long. No, um, she's not going to be here for much longer at this rate. Well, no, she keeps making mistakes like that, absolutely <laughs> not. But uh, anyway, that was her mistake. Excellent. Uh, well but, done, Izzy. But I've given it to you. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Congratulations, everyone. Well done. Well done. Uh, on Tuesday, Boris Johnson gave a speech in the House of Commons, but just before we went to it, we took a call from Stephen Hemel Hempstead, he wins the period for beating the all-time record for the shortest call ever. We are awaiting the arrival of Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, into the House of Commons, where he's going to be explaining why we think uh, he's going to be explaining why the two-metre social distancing rule uh, will be going down to one metre. Uh, that's what we're expecting to do. Uh, but let's, before we see him, uh, talk to Steve, who's in Hemel Hempstead. Hi, Steve. Hi, Mike. How are you doing, Steve? Forgive me if I have to break away quickly if Boris Johnson yeah, comes sure. back. Or in fact, he has already come up, so I'm <laughs> going to break away now. Sorry. I'll come back to yeah. you. Stay where you are. Maybe Boris I should have... Families should've... and friends. Maybe I should have spent less time telling everyone what yes. Boris was going to say. Yes. Then I could have spoken to that, Steve for a minute. That was that was also why I yeah. decided to pull the full clip <laughs> and not just the video. Sorry, Steve. You, um, we to... got, I think we got him back on, though, didn't yes, we? Yes, I was just about to clarify that, yes, he came back on, mm. he had his time, and, and he had, like, a normal... Yes, because it's important. You thought. know, we like to give you the chance to have your voice heard. Absolutely. But, um, you know, what I mean to say to Stephen and everyone else, like, please don't be offended if we ever uh, put you on pause because the prime minister is on. Yeah, listen, it's, a good, it's a good enough reason. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's pretty much the only person that will cut you off. Mm. But, you know, we always get you back after. Exactly. Uh, journalist Bill Burrows uh, joined us yesterday to give us some documentary recommendations. And he makes it to the Perry Rewards for the first time ever for his live performance of a setup to a classic joke impossible landing on one foot and um, the 94 world championships in japan she came second when there was no way she should have come second right. and uh, she took a medal off on the podium um, sounds like she, somebody she, at the door yeah it does sound like somebody at the door do you know what he did he sent me a text late he said it was the postman oh was it i don't know what the postman's doing in his house no i mean that wasn't his front door he was knocking on well, maybe he was like a, maybe like he's a in an office flat. But maybe he's in an office or something. Because I thought, oh, the hang on, the postman, mm. that doesn't sound like a knock on your front door, does it? No. But it could be like a like a front door to a flat. I suppose so. And if he's like near that door, I don't know. Mm. I'm not a door expert, but I'll try and get someone on next okay. week to talk to us about this. Maybe do doors in the homeschooling. Yes. Is he write that down? She'll probably right. book something entirely different, yes. bless her. Right. <laughs> uh, and finally, uh, caller Cornelius in Swansea wins the loss for words period award. Yes. What are you going to do if you get to the seven, seven crossing and they don't let you over? Well, um, um, my, uh, I, well. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think you better get a better story ready. Well, yes. Yes. Uh, mm. Do better. Yes. Well uh, done. Anyway, that's all for the Perry Rewards. Thank you very much indeed. See you more next week. The Perry Awards on Talk Radio. 
Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.